0: And welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we're joined by winning team NFL coach Pete Carroll and co-host of their podcast Amplify Voices with Audrey Cominesia. Remember we take your questions each episode so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can and don't forget tell us where you're from. Please check out the link To our friend and sponsor, Magic Spoon. Oh, do we love Magic Spoon. Check out the link to our show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, um, a number of things to talk about this week. I guess, first of all, um, is Joe Manchin and the voting bill. Uh, I still hold out hope that you can get Joe Manchin for a slimmed-down voting bill that overturns these voter suppression laws. I must say I was very disappointed in the column he wrote. Disappointed not for the position he took, but it it, it really was a column that didn't make any sense if you read it carefully. He said we can only do, he said we've got to do, whatever we do about voting has to be on a bipartisan uh, um, way. You It only can be done in a bipartisan manner. Well, the problem, the reason we're having to do something in Congress, we should do something, is because of the partisan voter suppression that they've enacted in state after state secondly he said we have to get republicans you ain't going to get republicans uh and thirdly he talked about well let's pass the john lewis voting act which is which is prospective it doesn't do anything about those other laws i still hope joe manchin can come around it's going to have to be joe biden but um, it, it really matters a lot for the country for biden for schumer and also for manchin yeah, I, I think so, and, and it's,
1: this has got to be a Joe Biden, Joe Manchin right. conversation, and obviously he's not going to vote for the eight hundred no page bill. All right, so but if they can get that thing kind of slimmed down to just protect the right to vote, that that would be a, a great start. But you know, like I saw this Congressman Jamal Brown. Uh, said that Joe Manchin was the new Mitch McConnell, all right? Congressman Brown's from York City. I bet you that uh, the Democrats have not lost a precinct in that congressional district in this century, all right? I, I Just maybe there's one, but I doubt it. Joe Manchin has to run in a state that the Democrats have not carried a county in since 2008, all right? It, I'm a very political guy, but Joe Manchin has political considerations to make that many, 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 many other Democrats don't have, and I think the way to deal with Senator Manchin is for, for the Vice President and Senator Schumer, you know, to sit down, and, and I think at a point he's going to have to say, "Look, I, I did everything I could to get bipartisan, to get this thing bipartisan. I often negotiate, no negotiate for this one time only I think we can call by: Yeah, I, that's yeah. <clears throat> the best we're going to do."
0: I, I, I totally agree. Uh, West Virginia, which 30 years ago was a democratic stronghold. Now, as a Republican governor, the legislature is overwhelmingly uh, Republican. All three members of the House are Republicans, and the other senator is Republican. Joe Manchin uh, is, is, is the only Democrat that can win in that state. So I agree. Those New York congressmen, uh, um, you know, would, would, would be well advised just to keep quiet. And it has to be done internally. The only, but, but in the end, what will matter is whether you get some kind of measure that overturns these voter suppressions. If, if if that happens by however you do it, by November, or, you know, actually by, it needs to be done by August or September, then I say, all hail uh, Joe Manchin. If, if if not, you know, it's going to affect his legacy, too.
1: Yeah, it was. But, you know, in 2018, he ran as a Democrat. And he, you know how much easier his life would have been if he
0: had just yeah. switched parties? He wouldn't even
1: have the to Richard have campaign. Shelby.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Right. Right. James, one other issue this week, there was a... Really, I thought a fascinating story in the New York Times by Michael Powell, who is one of their more talented writers, about the great schism split within the American Civil Liberties Union about who they represent, do they stand up for unpopular causes. Um, I, I've long admired the ACLU, and I, they've, they've represented just some dreadful organizations, some dreadful people in the name of constitutional protections for free speech and free assembly. In 1978, the American Nazis wanted to parade through Skokie, Illinois, which was populated by Holocaust survivors. The ACLU defended the right of Nazis, a despicable small band, to do that because of their belief in free speech and free assembly. And yet today, Michael Powell reveals their factions within the ACLU says that we, you know, we really shouldn't represent groups and causes that are antithetical to our values or that somehow, somehow uh, give offense to marginalized groups. That defeats the purpose, I believe, of the ACLU. Uh, there was no group more contrary to their values in 1978 than the American Nazis. And, and few more marginalized groups and Holocaust survivors. I really think it would change the whole nature of the ACLU if they were to become, and in, in really in this sense, politically correct. Yeah,
1: you know, an ACLU does things that, that, other things, that they, they sue to not have metal detectors in airports. Okay, that I think that's insane, but that they have to be a, a reflexively, you know, uh, against any kind of regulation on on speech or behavior or something like that. And th- this is a big thing. This is a very much of a generational thing, particularly among liberals. Older liberals like myself we we just the idea of not letting somebody speak is just anathema. That's just what you grow up believing it was core very central to your belief system. It used to be these right-wingers tried to shut movies down and, and that kind of stuff, and you, what, what are you doing? But the younger liberals they think that somehow or another free speech has failed them, and they want regulated speech on their basis. And a lot of them would tell you, look, the, the oppressor does not have the same speech right as the oppressed. And once you start trying to determine who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed, you get into a lot of trouble the best way to do is let everybody speak.
0: Yeah, it is. Because if you start oppressing some speech, your speech is ultimately going to be uh, affected by it and endangered by it. I, You know, one of the most, I think, two or three greatest people I've ever known in politics was a man named Abner Mikva, who was a federal judge, a congressman, a counsel, Bill Clinton's White House. And he represented Skokie in 1978. It's a district that he was, you know, he'd usually win by about a thousand votes uh, and he came out against the ACLU, and, and he later said it was the biggest mistake he made in his life, that it might have cost him the election, but the principle was so big. Uh, and I think now to say the principle depends on, on whether these people are contrary to your values or not, I, it just, as I say, I think it just defeats the whole purpose of the Civil Liberties Union.
1: I, I, I did an exercise with my class, and I said, suppose that David Duke, was going to come to LSU and speak at the Free Speech Alley, which he famously did. I actually used to debate him back when I was in college. And what should you do? And A lot of them said we well, shouldn't let him on campus. And you know, I said, well, you you really want to think about that. I mean, you got you got other tools at your disposal. You could boycott it. You, you could hold a counter demonstration. But I'm i just that kind of stuff. Just a, a liberal of my generation that just makes me terribly uncomfortable. And I don't know the right, the good answer. To well, I
0: think one of the things, if you let David Duke speak on campus, that he will uh, he will show himself to be the fraud that he is. Uh, I think actually exposure to fringe groups is good because it uh, you know look I'm not going to say they're not problems. There are, and I think you know it's the old you can't you know you can't cry fire in a in a, in a crowded theater. Right. And people who go and try to incite violence, I think I think that's that's different. But it really that's a that's a high bar. And, um, you yeah. know, I heard some
1: students said it'd bring dishonor to the university. You know, why do we have to tell people David Duke graduated from LSU? Well, he did. You just can't, you know, they have other reasons. I certainly hope he would not do that. I don't know that he's planning on it anyway for me. I know it would give the administration, you know, <laughs> a, a, a lot of angst. But it's just an, you know, an example of... This kind of saying and I, I I agree. This is an interesting story, up but the ACO. Yeah, you
0: know, James. One more. Um, one more. Uh, I think important story this week, and it's one that I'm a little bit conflicted on. The FDA approved a new Alzheimer's drug for the first time in years. Um, my immediate instinct was, hey, that's good. Anything. I mean, the suffering that these people go through. We've had friends who've done it. Upon talking to people who know a lot about it, I, I must say, I'm, I'm. I think this might be much more of a problem. I mean, first of all, this new drug, you know, helps a little bit, but there are also down downsides, and the downsides may outweigh whatever small benefits there are. Uh, and a... a, a Really great Alzheimer's doctor told me it's not at all clear insurance companies will cover it. Not everybody with Alzheimer's is on Medicare, so it may create more uh, more inequities. But finally, the the concern is that it may make it harder to recruit people for clinical drugs for trials. Or excuse me, clinical trials for drugs that could be more promising. So on the surface, it looks good, and I know if I you know had a loved one who was suffering from Alzheimer's, I would say anything. But um, it's more problematic.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. There was a piece in a, by a couple you know, highly credentialed physicians and I think it was the New York Times, that breaks a lot of the same points you did. It, this is not being greeted as universal good news at all. Uh,
0: we ought to spend more money on Alzheimer's research. We ought to spend more money, as Biden has proposed, for uh, home health care, for take care of people, Uh, And then we ought to, you know, because it's a it's a it's a problem that will that will potentially bankrupt America in 40 or 50 years if we don't do something about it. So. All right. Lots to lots to talk about next week, too, James. Oh, as always. Hey, now, James and I want to take a minute to tell you about our favorite snack breakfast on the go meal and an all around delicious treat magic spoon cereal magic spoon zero grams of sugar 13 to 14 grams of protein only four net grams of carbs in each serving it's only 140 calories a serving it is gluten-free grain-free soy-free low-carb and gmo-free it is just great I, i will tell you i like it and my grandchild just loves it this is this is kai's cereal uh, we love that you can build your own box customized with your favorite flavors from cocoa, fruity, frosted peanut butter, blueberry and cinnamon. James, as you've said, it this is something that both tastes great and is good for you. That's rare. It, it really is and I was surprised. I mean when people
1: order this product what what's going to surprise you, you know, when you read the ingredients and the nutritional content. You said am getting ready to put a piece of cardboard in my mouth. I know it. And it's anything but—it's actually really tasty. Whoever the food scientists they have there, whoever does this, that they, they understand what constitutes a, a, a really complex taste profile and something that's good for you. So I'm hardly a health food guy, you know, being from New Orleans, but th- this is, you don't sacrifice anything on your taste profile to, to get this kind of— Do nutrition. you have a favorite brand, or is there just multiple— favorites I, I i tend to go more with fruit with fruit place brands than i do like chocolate or, or something like that but that's just a matter of taste yeah all right I, I i i like you know lemonade I, I like blackberry lemonade you know that kind of stuff i i have a very i, I eat a lot of berries so i i, I like any kind of a berry flavored thing or, that, that that stuff is more appealing to me but it, it, the one thing is it, it's not my taste it's your right. taste and there's hardly anything that you like that you can't find out the variety is just unbelievable. well
0: you know kai hunts with you he's a blueberry guy uh, at three and a half uh, i'm into peanut butter i love the peanut butter but you know the combo to mix them together uh some people say is just is great anyway go to magicspoon.com slash to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today be sure to use our promo code WARROOM, that's all one word, at checkout to save $5 on your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. 100% guarantee. And remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com WARROOM and use the code WARROOM. To save five bucks. Look for the link on our show notes and thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Hey James, the legendary football coach, Pete Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks, and Audrey. Kavanesia, uh, an expert storyteller, or, and I probably didn't pronounce her name correctly, and I apologize. But they're launching a media company, a podcast, Amplify Voices Conversations from the Heart, to talk about diversity and caring and people and social justice. It's really a fascinating undertaking with two interesting people, and we're so delighted that they're joining us today. I thank them. Uh, let me start with you, Coach Carroll. It's, it, this is certainly an unfair generalization, but you often don't associate white professional sports coaches with a passion for social justice and what you're doing. There are exceptions like Greg Popovich and others. But tell us about Pete Carroll and his commitment to this podcast and what you're doing.
2: Well, Al, first off, uh, thanks for having us on. It's great to be with you and, and the great James, uh, and so I'm glad Audrey and I have a chance to visit with you guys. The, um, you know, the, I think it's just a, a general sense of caring for people that um, has, you know, brought me to the the cause and that uh, really I, I ran into when I was at USD. Uh, working in south central at, at, you know the area we were right right there in the heart of all of the community that was was uh, kind of under siege and uh, at USC we had a chance you know to to get into the community I had a chance to visit with some kids and, and people and and start to come to understand what's going on and uh, it's it's just become more and in, increasingly obvious that w- that we need people uh, white people people to understand what's going on in 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 our communities uh what where there's enormous need uh, where there's a extraordinary need for uh the empathy and for understanding and for the willingness to do something about it and and uh, and kind of attack attack the issue wherever we can so it's just been something that's been close to my heart kind of in general you know i'm a little bit of a caring person anyway and and uh it's just been something that i can't i can't uh, avoid. I just need to be involved as much as I can in, in fight the fight.
0: And how much have you learned and been affected by the players you've coached? I would guess, I, know, I haven't looked, but they're probably what, 70, 75% black?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it, precisely the, uh, the, the avenues that, that led me to start to understand why the, there's a sensitivity that needs to be understood. And uh, through the the you know, the years and years working in diverse situations uh, and being close with coaches and players and families and, and all of that, um, I just been my eyes have been open, my ears have been open to to understand what is going on. And uh, fortunately, um, the, the players have been willing to share. And, and one of the the biggest. Uh, aspects here that, that, that people need to understand is if you listened and if you watched and, and, and you you paid attention to what's going on, it's so difficult to avoid uh, the, the, the need for for our understanding and, and for the work that we can do to, to do positive, helpful things. And, and uh, so the players have been extremely instrumental. And the, the really the essence of it is our guys are scared to death they they're scared to death to, to, to be in the streets to be in the cars to be uh, going to the grocery store and and i don't think i don't think white people understand that i don't think they realize how deep and how uh, and in you know how ingrained this mentality is because they're they're fearful and nobody should have to live in fear nobody should have to worry about their children going out and, and, and playing in the playgrounds or or playing in the front yard or playing in the streets where, like like we we all have growing up there's no there, there's no reason that life should be like that and so uh, we need to work to to bring the awareness to people that so they can see things differently and see things and understand what's really the truth of what's going Audrey, on Audrey
0: pick up on some of that and also talk about how you're a you're a brand builder a storyteller tell her, tell tell us about how you and and uh, and Pete Carroll relate uh, in this uh, in this enterprise
3: yeah absolutely you know it's interesting because Pete and I didn't meet uh, with an intention to like oh wow you're a woman of color great why don't you join me in this we really met on the on the common ground of purpose and mission, and and really where we see the direction of the tides going in terms of humanity, that we we see an era of um, authoritarian, divisive leadership, conversations that separate us, um, fear based. Uh, sensationalism, and um, and we really see that the era that things are going towards is really one of generosity and compassion and empathy and. And that doesn't mean everything's soft. I mean, you have tough conversations. There's tough feelings that are going to come up. And I think we have a lot of things that we need to talk about. And in order to do that, there needs to be a narrative out there that allows for it. So when Pete and I came together, uh, you know, I proposed a media company to him because just like you said, Al, it's not expected to have a coach running a media company that, by the way, has nothing to do with sports. It's really unexpected. And it, what was so great was presenting it to William Morris and Caden Thirteen, who we work with. They were at first thinking I was gonna pitch them some great sports <laughs> angle and they were like, wait, humanity? That is even better. So how Pete and I really relate in this is we start with ourselves. Pete and I have a dialogue about my view of the world, his view of the world, how we even notice just micro moments between ourselves that we learn from every single interaction and every single day Pete's teaching me something and I'm teaching him something and really that's all we want to do is represent that in terms of highlighting a narrative and by the way that's not saying anything super like Pete and I are the only people that are out there um, instituting the sort of caring leadership banner. The point of having a narrative and having a media company, to me, is to shine a light on the people that are already out there doing it. They've been doing it for years. There's just not as much attention in stories out there around this perspective. And if we think about how we want the world to be for our children, our grandchildren, the kind of place that we want to work in, especially now that work has become so disrupted in terms of how we're going to, you know, what time we'll spend at work, doing things remotely, we're really decentralized in terms of how we're operating in a day-to-day life. We want something that's empowering. We want to know that we're coming out of a really, really tough time and we're not just going to be okay. We're going to be great and we're going to do it together. So that's really where Pete and I really mesh together and what we have our eye on. And that's why the podcast, we really just, you know, we didn't want to just talk about what celebrities or influential people or or people out there are accomplishing. We wanted to do more than that. We just wanted to give them the space to be human. And every day, you know, you experience a different day. Some days are great and some days are not great. And that's okay. We're all dealing with that.
0: Boy, that's great. James.
1: Uh, that's a part I want to go to you. I, I would look at myself, and I think most people would James Carville believes in equality, all right? But I think what people are saying now, equality is not enough. There has to be some equity, and talk to us a little bit about the distinction between equality and equity and how we can think about
2: that well I think it's really uh, it's, it's really on point james it's easy to to, to understand equality we the, the thought of that uh, it's it's a hard it's a hard task to 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 take on because there's there's been a history of uh, work that's gone against allowing for and creating equality. The equity part of it is, is when you when you look back, with the price that's been paid uh, by by the people that have that have been, you know, challenged. So. Clearly, in so many different ways, that you like to give them the opportunity to have a, a, a clear shot for success and a clear shot for opportunity, and, and uh, not that you're trying to give something to somebody so they they can they can get away with it and, 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 and live on it. It's it's to give people an opportunity to do uh, the things that a life offers, and, and that's to have a good family, to have a good job, to have a chance to possibly own your where you live, and and uh, and, and make a good run of it. That's all. It's it's real simple, and and. Uh, yeah. So, the the equity question is is you know there's there's a lot of discussion here and, and there's a lot of a lot of opposition here too. Just automatically that uh, I think if we keep walk, work, walking our way through this, people can understand that there is real purpose, there is real reason behind considering that.
1: Yeah. So I I'm, there. I'm having this epiphany. The problem with poverty is people have money. All right. And how do you cure a lack of money? Well, you cure it with money. And there's a proposal by Senator Booker. It was come up by a couple of economists. Uh, who, 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 by the way, has been a guest that, on
0: their podcast, I believe. Right, Audrey? It,
1: it, yeah. And and where when a baby a child is born and parents are under a certain income threshold, the federal government deposits money in an account. And when they're 18 years old, $60,000, you know, I would say even more, you have $75,000 when you're 18. And... You know, you can do it for tuition or down payment of a house or something like that. Uh, you know, and if you get in, but, but you have money. You start life with something. Most people, children of poor people, start life with nothing. And they have nothing to lose. And I, I, I think the best best way to do And and by the way, it it, it would be like a form of reparations, if you will, because it would, it, it, but but if you were white and poor, you would get it too, or you were You know, brown and poor. It it didn't matter. But you would start life and you would have something and you would have something to lose. Because, you know, if if I play for the Seahawks and I know if I, you know, get into trouble, I'm going to lose something. They're going to make me sit out two games, lose part of my pay. But you have something. But most poor people, urban people, when they're 18, they got nothing. So they don't give a shit. I, that that's my general view, and I mean I think that that's the best idea I've
2: heard myself to deal with the problem of equality and equity. Well you know the thing too James about it if, if the money is 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 available for people that that are in the the you know the, the poverty setting. That money goes back into the economy. It's not not like that money disappears. That money right is part of the flow of, of for the people that are working in the, in the small businesses and, the, and, and in your communities. It's not like this money just disappears and it's, it's forgotten. This is it's part of the system and it and it feeds the system and and can build uh, an environment where people can find success more readily. And then uh, that's all we hope. We just we just want to give people a chance to have the opportunity that this this country can offer. And uh, so. We're working hard to try to keep the, at least the conversation alive as much as possible, and we don't have any answers, you know. We just we just <clears throat> like the discussions and and, and like the, the openness to it, and, and hopefully uh, we, we get better because of that.
3: You know, so, James, uh, I was going to say yeah. I was just going to say that it was interesting to me in terms of. Uh, looking at storytelling and how storytelling, I mean, it's so contextual, right? And context is decisive. So if you put a new context or a new narrative over something that we've all believed to be true, it starts to give us perspective. And one of the things that I have found by doing a lot of research is that when you have a narrative that certain people need help, what it does in terms of when we just talk about money and, and we look at money as a resource, like water is a resource, like love is a resource, like, you know, uh, uh, education is a resource. If We just keep it inside of that and saying that we want to redirect certain resources towards places that are lacking those resources. Right. It's interesting because I found that the data has shown that if you talk about people need help, they occur to people as um, less beneficial to invest in. So it's interesting as a lot of the stories that we're working on right now that we're, you know, part of our company is the podcast and then we're going to do documentaries and things like that where we really want to rise up certain stories and amplify them. But part of it is just to reach out to people that are doing projects to say, hey, maybe you don't have the resources to amplify it for yourself. We don't have anything to do with that project, but we just think it's amazing and more people should know about it. And the angle that we've taken in that is I don't want to hear about the disparity that black people don't have investment in land and less than 2% or less than 1%. What I want to talk about is their value. How valuable is it to invest in the black community? How valuable is it to invest in youth? How valuable is it to invest in certain areas? If we talk the talk of of of, um, economics, if we talk the talk of equity, not the talk of help and we're less than and all of that, then it does something. It does something to the relationship that people have to people. And of course, as the person of color on this call and the woman, I can tell you that, you know, I've never received a benefit because of my color or my gender that, that I know of. What I've done in my life is to amplify my own value. And if I don't have value, I find a way to create it and enroll people in that, that I'm valuable. So um, I think that's an important part of how we, we, just speaking for ourselves at Amplify Voices, how we want to address these issues of, of justice and equity is we wanna do it by telling stories of value.
1: So you know, let me just give you an example of something. I think you both can relate to this. One of my favorite students actually is from my hometown, which is 85% black. And he graduated, he actually transferred from LSU to Tulane. We remained friendly. And he called me and he said, James, I want to take the LSAT. And I want to try to go to GW or Georgetown. And the, but the prep course costs $1,600. And it's generally good for 10 to 15% better grade. And I said, I'll give you the $1,500. But compound that. So our kids want to go to law school. We hire tutors. We hire SAT. You take the thing three times ahead of time, you know, by that time. And you got somebody that, that knows the deal. And you you, you say, okay, you got, you got a person that has a poor background. They don't have $1,600 to pay for the LSAT prep. In fact, they got $160,000 in student debt. So inherently... If you just have a merit-based system, I already got a twelve and a half percent better chance than you do, yeah. and, and compound that over hundreds of thousands of times. Yes. All right. And and I, I just something I, I, I it struck me as just genuine, genuinely unfair. And I had not thought about that before, but I just wanted to share that with y'all as an example.
2: Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's about even, evening the opportunity out so that people have chance, because there are so many remarkable, extraordinary people in all walks that don't get the chance to be seen or be heard. And, and it's a, if we can do our bit and really figuratively as much as you know in reality show how important it is to give people that chance the the platform so somebody can hear about what you, what you're all about and then whatever happens happens you know and 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 we we have the thought that if you give people a, a chance to be seen and be heard that stuff, something good is going to happen and and so uh, it, it really excites us to be on on this you know on this path run and hopefully uh you know the the truth of the the, the human experience is everybody wants to be seen and heard everybody wants that chance and, and you know we we just want to give people a better opportunity and and we know that they'll do great things with it and uh, we do have to create our own value you said it. it's one of my my favorite tenets the the realization that we are the ones that have the power to create our own value well if you have the opportunity if you have a chance to be seen and heard so um, we're going to keep banging the drum here
0: Audrey (laughs) you have you you have talked to you've amplified the voice talked to people like Cory Booker uh, are you able also mm-hmm. to reach down to some of the really inspiring stories in the community? My daughter is a social worker in Baltimore. And for all oh. the sad, tragic stories, she says there's really some incredibly inspirational stories, both yes. individuals and groups. Uh, are you able, are you going to be able, and have you been able to reach those people in, in your storytelling? Tell yes. me about
3: Rage. yes so and i'll give the example of choose 180 um that's part of our concept which is why we're a production company and marketing company our marketing company is more of a um uh a service, if you will, kind of in a way in terms of just exactly what you're saying, Al, which is if we can have the Cory Bookers and the Neil deGrasse Tysons and the Rachel Maddows and get that attention, we're going to redirect those sources of, of attention from people and then be able to tell the stories that you're talking about, Al. We're balancing out that equation for every one influential people. Let's say we're doing 20 people that you've never heard of that are doing something great. And we have an opportunity to amplify that. So in our schedule, just as a, like in the reality of of it. In our schedule, every single week, we're shooting somebody that's local. We're flying to LA and shooting some, somebody, a, a mother who lost her son to gang violence, who is rising up these black women and, and been working with them and healing them. And coach knows about them. And he's like, okay, next get Kathy and next get this person. So from Pete and his wife, and and then internally on our team, every day, something new is suggested. We have an entire chat room in our Google Meets in with our team where we pull things from the news every day about some local person somewhere and we look at how to put it in our schedule to be able to get that story put together so that we can amplify it so we really want to we really want to be able to build sort of a, an ecosystem of of stories of highlighting different people across the United States that are doing exactly what you're talking about, Al, that you mentioned from your your daughter. And one of the guys that we came across, which was really exceptional um, in my digging through, uh, looking for for people to tell stories on, I found this great uh, organization called Choose 180 that's around recidivism. They really are, they have an extraordinary vision, as an example, where they felt that, you know, you lose a teen in, in this moment of choice, where they're about 12, 13, 14, they hit the system because you know they've been p- picked up or, 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 or focused on for, for whatever reason, but they're still at this place you can turn them around. And so they built a relationship directly with the court systems that those um, lawyers directly call them and say, Hey, we got a kid. Do you want to Do you want to get connected with this kid? And that's why they're Choose 180. They want to give them a pathway to choose something else. And they do work with them. They empower them. They bring mentors around. So I thought it was just extraordinary. I reached out to this gentleman who runs it named Sean. And I said, hey, I think what you're doing is amazing. We'd love to do a story on you. I know a lot of nonprofits don't have the budget for the kind of um, storytelling that we could do and amplification that we can do. So uh, I reached out to him and Turns out that way back in the day, he was working on a project where Coach was there at the YMCA, and he said the biggest influence of mentorship that has me do what I'm doing was because of the, what I learned from Coach. And I was like, what? I had no idea that he had any connection to Coach at all. So we're just kind of getting these very synchronistic connections and, and recommendations for people. So, Al, if you have somebody... <laughs> We'd love to know. No,
0: I, I I will send them to you. And James, you and I have got to start to 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 listen to these stories. I I, I mean, I wow is all I can say. Coach Carroll, let me uh, let me ask you. I want to combine your you know your your two goals in life now, coaching and this social justice. The National Football League initially acted, I thought, very poorly when players were kneeling for social justice. I thought they treated Colin Kaepernick terribly. Fifty years after Tommy. Smith and John Carlos has the league learned has football learned uh, from those mistakes.
2: Uh, well, you've heard, you've heard expressions of, of, uh, you know, new understanding and, and, uh, and all that, but we have a long ways to go. I think we, until we really can, can share the stories of our players in, to the point where we're helping people uh, not of color, understand what's going on. I, I don't know that we're going to really be there. And, but, but, yeah, they're making efforts. They're trying to get it done. They're trying to understand, and they are listening to players on you know all the way up the, the the scale of the of the NFL hierarchy. They're 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 trying to understand it. But we we have such a powerhouse of an organization that there's so much that we could do that I'm not going to be satisfied with with you know just sharing that we understand. I think we, we have to continue to be really at proactive. We've got to give people the, the opportunity to again to be seen here and in and, and share the stories that they have to share. So that we can, you know, we we can teach. We can teach a lot of people through through this medium that we have. And so I'm not going to be satisfied. But I know all the way. Up, Roger Goodell is is it's a it's a major concern of his to understand and, and to, to act on it. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm I, again I'm going to keep fighting for more and, and hope hopefully we can do a really make a really big effort here because we have such power. One to do more
0: so. on that, coach, and that is as you know, one of the fundamental rights uh, in America is the right to vote. Uh, and a number of states uh, have enacted voter suppression laws that particularly affect people of color. Should um, should, should, should professional sports, the athletes, the organizations, get involved in this? Uh, 30 years ago, when Arizona wouldn't pass a Martin Luther King holiday, uh, they pulled the Super Bowl from Arizona. Uh, Super Bowl is supposed to be in Arizona year after next. I mean, is this something that, 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 that uh, a league that has so many... You know, distinguished black athletes should get involved in.
2: There's no question. Our our athletes are are well-rounded people, and they they want to. They have a a life that they live, where they have uh, an influence in their home areas where they come from, in the broader areas, depending on their, you know. the way they've been exposed, um, they have a great voice. And, and most importantly, we need to listen. And that's what's going on. You see it this year, maybe more so than ever. Uh, the, the The players have spoken, and they're, they're, they continue to speak out. When we can uh, understand the, the tremendous value that their messaging brings and, and respond to it and act on it, that's when we're going to have the greatest impact, I think. And, and uh, it, it, it brings the like, – Audrey said at the top of the this, this show here that it brings the humanity in, in in touch. For somebody to think these guys are only players and they should just take the basketball and dribble it, they're they're a million miles off of the reality of what our guys have to offer and what they're willing to offer. They'll give of themselves. I see it daily throughout our community and the communities across the country, from NFL players, uh, Major League Baseball players, basketball players. Uh, They have a huge influence and we need to allow them to be heard as well. And so any other any other approach, I think, is would you pull the the
0: Super Bowl out of Arizona if they have that voter suppression
2: law? I I would support anything that that gets that that whole effort uh, stopped. You know, I think it's, it's 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 a hideous movement right now. And I, I, hate, I hate that it's happening and wish, wish we could see it otherwise. So whatever takes whatever yeah. takes place, I, I would ask James what's the right thing to do. There, He would no more. Right. Other I, other I, other I, well, <laughs> I, what
1: I do, the first thing I would do is I would read Tom Etzel in this morning's New York Times on the website. And I would read Tom Etzel every week. And he really talks about the right to vote and what's going on out there. And it's worse than you think. And he quotes Tucker Carlson as saying, every time that somebody new gets on the voter rolls, it diminishes my vote. Ergo, we don't want anybody else. And this entire thing in Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King understood the right to vote was paramount. That was what both of them will understand. And it's good that we tell stories and it's good that we do all of this and we should. But we have got to raise holy hell on this voting issue. And if you read Tom's column, and he he's not a uh, he's not a he's not a Homer at all. Uh, I, I mean, he's got a certain thing where he calls academics. It's a very good thing. But I, I really recommend for, for Audrey you, you, you and Coach to read that. And because yeah. without the right to vote, you know, you ain't got shit. Just to be, just to be blunt about it. And they yeah. and they're coming after the right to vote. They're coming after it big time.
2: Yeah, to be heard, man. That's, that's to the, be. Good. There's nothing that there's nothing in, 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 in this country that should stand up for trying to squelch somebody's opinion of, of where, how things should go. We should give them every opportunity to speak out. That's That's what it seems like democracy was always meant to be. I, I don't know. That's why I got to ask people like James. He knows. But uh, it sure seems like the right thing to do is to fight that as much as Audrey, possible.
0: Roger, you want to pick up on any of that?
3: Uh, you know, uh, one of the great things that um, Coach and I really—I mean, you saw him reach over and write down as soon as James said that—is really the the opportunity to expand ourselves. I mean, it's funny before uh, yesterday when Pete and I were talking about being really excited to be on the call with you guys today. That um, we're not—we're not, we're not uh, politically savvy people, so we we want to learn. We want to know. It's this is an extraordinary opportunity for us to to learn from you guys in terms of. Um, what we should know, and I I know that just as an example, I know Coach has said, you know, he he has He has always been on the side of of equality and equity and inclusion and diversity. But this last year brought a whole new insight into how bad things are and how increasingly bad things will get if we don't do something. And I got to tell you, while I have not had that insight as a person of color, I've, I've lived it, I've known it, I've suppressed it just to survive. But the thing that did wake up for me is how ignorant I've been of politics. And I've been okay with that. To be my age and to like know barely anything, last year was a huge dive for me. As, as white people were trying to learn about black and brown people, I was trying to learn about politics. So I, I, I really don't have a lot to say that would be, I'm sure, any benefit to your audience other than I'm right there with a lot of them. And I'm, I'm just trying to learn and, and be in action and amplify the voices that know so much more yeah, than Pete know, you- and I. Audrey,
1: you, you're articulate, you're passionate, and you understand that storytelling is the s- central experience of human life. Yes. If you have those three things, and then you have the coach to amplify this and discuss that with you, you can't do any better than that. Thank James, James. Carville and Al Hunt <laughs> can't can't do. I can't come up with anything better <laughs> other than to please, please put the right to vote. At the top of the agenda, because without that, all right, without that, and and this sort of right-wing replacement theory, they're very big into that. Without that, the other stuff we're going to do is not going to amount to very much. Got it. And, And people
2: people that oppose that thought. The, the 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 right to vote, and then what, you know everybody needs to be heard. What, what are you thinking of that? Well, what, what's going on? How could somebody? Oh, sure. Where did that come from? It comes from this: that if
1: we keep letting everybody vote, we can't win an election. Even even Trump himself said, if we let everybody vote, I don't have a chance. So what you do is you try to restrict in any way you can as many people from voting that have a high propensity to vote Democratic. I.e., black people, poor people. You know, urban people, and it, and it, that's what all of these restrictions have in mind. They, it, it, they know that they, they have to hold on to power. The Georgia legislature knows if they let everybody vote and didn't have gerrymandered districts, that ass would be right, right out on the street. The Texas legislature knows that. The North Carolina legislature knows that. That's why you are seeing all of this to say we can't, if we if we let everybody vote, we can't win. And the Supreme Court said in 2013 in Shelby County versus Holder, there's no racism in the United States. Thank you, John Roberts. Jesus, I didn't know that. I always thought there was, you know. <laughs> you tell us there's not. So that, that's my plea to both of you. And, you, and Audrey, the, the way that you feel about things just comes out so magnificently. And I, I you know, and I... I think both of you got a, a, a really good thing, and it's really smart to, you know, give amplification to other voices that you know. Boy,
0: I, I, I want to, I just want to say so amen nice. to that. I think you all can do so much, including in this area. I just think this is uh, just an exciting uh, uh, enterprise you're engaged in Two, uh, in some ways, quite different people, but also quite obviously simpatico people, and uh, I, I just, I'm, it, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Uh, I wish you. That. We're going to be. We're going to be there. we I got. We're I got one question. Follows. Go I ahead. I got James. one question. James for Coach. always has a final question. So <laughs> we, we. No, I, well this one. I've
1: I been. Mean, we have. We have. Coach uh, Cal and I have a, a, a mutual friend, and I want you to talk a little bit about Coach Ed O'Shreon, who's now at LSU. I think you and he had uh, the relationship over the years. I appreciate is.
2: you bringing that up. You, you know, uh, when uh, when I went to USC, um, I went to. A, I happened to run into Coach O at a. It was really the couple nights before I got the job. There was a championship game being played in Southern California, and I went to the game and, and uh, somebody said, "Hey, there's there's one of the SC coaches," and I was just you know dying to get the job, and and I didn't know from anybody but through a friend of mine had mentioned his name, and so we talked for a few minutes in the, in the end zone uh, that that high school game, and before you knew it, we were working the sidelines and we were we were recruiting our butt off man, and from that point forward, uh, the the energy the the passion that 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 bebe ogeron has for for life uh, for his background for where he comes from uh, uh, the the game of football um, just giving everything he's got to to the guys he works with is it has just been you know, omnipresent i mean he's never not been who he is for uh, for LSU to have any coach in this team, I don't know how there could ever be a better guy that to represent the people and uh, the the fans and the following, uh, in in right from the heart. I mean, he is just a real deal. He, he he's always been. When I lost him at SD and he went, he went on to uh, Ole Miss, that was, was never the same. And so when he had the chance to go back to SD and he was coaching it, and they didn't hire him, oh man, I was I was so disappointed in that because they, they missed it because he's such an extraordinary individual. So I know James that you you know of Eddie, and I'm sure you guys right. get a chance to, to holler at each other once in a while. But he is the real deal from Lafluche, You know, he made, whether he he, he is he is he is the Bayou. He yeah. is the LSU. He's yeah. everything about it. Well, yeah. I'll tell he, you, I, I I'll tell you,
0: who else is the real deal is Coach Carroll and Audrey. Uh, and amplify voices, conversations from the heart. Anybody out there? You know, you gotta, you gotta uh, join. You gotta listen to it. James and I are gonna be followers. I promise. Thank you all so much for doing this program. Thank you, thank, thank you so much. Arthur, you, you,
1: you go, girl. You go, girl. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs>
2: right. Thanks, James. Thank uh, bye.
0: And now, James, for the segment that we love, the great listener questions, and sometimes our, uh, our great answers. But let's start with Matt in Riverside, California. He says, what do you think about the recent agreement in Israel to replace Bibi Netanyahu? The, the opposition party seems to agree that a right-wing nationalist uh, will somehow be better than, than, than Bibi. Uh, will this produce any kind of change? Is something to be welcomed or not? Right um well first of all it's
1: it's a right-wing party but that's shared power and has left-wing parties in the coalition and I understand it even has some some Arab parties within that coalition look could it it can't be any worse than what they had before uh, I mean that their democracy is obviously having having trouble cobbling together a majority and it's kind of hard for me to see that this government is going to last a long time a, Hope that it does. It would surprise me. But you know, it's gotta change. I mean, BB's been there for fifteen years. Uh, you know, Israeli politics are a little bit different. They don't turn over a lot of new faces. I mean, Shimon Perez was involved in Israeli politics for like fifty years. But uh it can't be any worse. Uh, there's some chance that. It can help bring the country together a little bit. I I wouldn't bet on it, but I I hope. Yeah, it I do
0: too. And I I fear that what uh, Netanyahu is going to do is uh, try to go the Trump route and create trouble. Some of the security agents over there have already warned. Agencies have warned that there could be violence. Uh, it's amazing the similarities between Trump and Bibi. Uh, but uh, and and the other similarity maybe they they both be they both could be fitted for an orange jumpsuit before too long. But uh, the next, Kay, from Hilton Head, Iowa. What a wonderful place. Kay wonders if Michael Flynn is receiving a military pension. Shouldn't he lose his pension given his contact calling for a military coup? You know, yeah, he is receiving a military pension. Uh, He is, uh, I think, a disgraced uh, former former military officer. He is a criminal. He was pardoned by Trump. Uh, If you ever look at the particulars of what he did, it was not just one or two things, but it was across the board. Uh, I think, violations of law. He's really, he he's become a fringe character. So, y- y- yeah, could you justify going after his pension? I wouldn't worry about it. They're more important things to focus on.
1: Well, I, did, I, I read something and I don't quite understand. It, but I know the Uniform Code of Military Justice doesn't apply to me. But there's some way that it may apply to, like, a retired general. And if any of our listeners out there understand this aspect of the you it, the Uniform Court of Military Justice, please let us know. But I'm going to try to find a story and reread it. But, you know, I, what I want to know is this guy is is completely nuts. He is. Right? And he was a three-star general. I mean, at promotion boards time and time and time again. And by, by, by all accounts, he was a hell of a soldier. But did he he was just crazy? Or did he just turn crazy after he got out? I mean, a, the Army's got to look at who it promotes and to see if they're actually sane, because the last thing you want is an insane three-star general. Yeah, maybe the Army's... Well, James, right, he's insane now, but he wasn't insane when we promoted him. Okay, that's fine, but that somebody missed a red flag. Yeah,
0: I think it. you're right. It's uh, you know, it's pretty hard to suddenly become insane um, um, in, in, in his position, but he sure has achieved it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, a True. bad man. Bad man. Uh, this is a question from Alana in British Columbia, uh, Canada. God, that's another great spot. Ooh, that's oh, a beautiful wow. place. Uh, who asked, don't you think we should, start, we should stop acting like Trump as a politician and start thinking of him more like a David Koresh at Waco or followers of Jim Jones of Johnstown fame? You know, she's on something.
1: Yeah, th- we should think of him as what he is, a criminal. That's what I think. I, 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 when I see Trump, the first word comes to my mind, criminal. And I think that that word is going to be made official here within the next yeah. eighteen months. Yeah, they, you know, yeah. We should not look at him. That way. he doesn't deserve it. He He's is. a criminal. That's my view, my, my own personal opinion, and I think my
0: opinion will be validated. I agree. Jacqueline in Milford, Pennsylvania. She lives in Northeast Pennsylvania. It's a Trumpy area. That she says slowly is getting more blue as newcomers come in from New York and New Jersey. Uh, and as you know, uh, she says, Senate Republican Pat Toomey not going to be running next year. Uh, there are a number of, de- of promising Democrats who've announced their intention to run. What do you think are their chances? Well, the, the supposed front runner is the lieutenant governor who is kind of a Sanders populist. Uh, he, he, is, he won that office. Uh, but I think there's still that field is yet to fill out. Uh, Connor Lamb, congressman from western Pennsylvania, moderate Democrat, could run. Chrissy Houlihan, a, uh, a congresswoman from Philadelphia, Good run. It depends on what the field looks like. Yeah,
1: Alvin, I think I did a event for Chrissy. She has said she's, I think she has said publicly, but I'm not sure that she's. She's, she's not going to run. run.
0: Well, if she doesn't run, I'll bet so one that, of those other suburban women Democrats run. I I, I didn't. And,
1: and they may, but I mean, there's some concern that they really want to to win the seat. You know, I think that was part of Chris's thinking. So you but think that clears the, the way idea. for Connor Well, I think I think Connor will run. You know, but Fetterman is—he's articulate. I mean, he's not a—he's he, the left, clearly left of Connor, uh, but he's not—he—he's he, a talented communicator. Uh, and they'll have a very competitive primary. Maybe somebody—you know—you might have. The suburban Philadelphia you might have a black candidate. I don't know. Uh, but I, I hope the party just doesn't get divided in this fight because it, that's a, our best opportunity for people. Well, a
0: it really is. That, that is. I think that North Carolina and uh, one or two others are really important. And uh, uh, and I'll, by the way, our
1: blister is correct that Northeast is becoming an extension almost of New York yeah. suburbs. It's kind of a, a New Jersey suburb. And,
0: y- you know... Uh, that I, I think your concern about uh, uh, an internal war in the Democratic primary is justified, but the Republicans are going to have it just as bad, if not worse. I mean, there is going to be a, uh, a uh, right-wing, uh, hard Trump faction that's going to be go against what may be the... You know, establishment moderate conservative Republicans, and that will become vicious.
1: Oh, Tom Tom Ridge couldn't get fifteen no, percent of the vote no, in Republican no, primary no, in Pennsylvania, or, or Dick Thornburg, right? or Bill Scranton, or any of the No, yeah. no, no, right. no I, 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 right. you know, well, uh, John right. Heinz, he wouldn't get he wouldn't get four percent. All right, I mean that this this is not something that is contested on their side. It's definitive. The, the, the
0: Trump person is some of those win. Republican members of their state legislature went to Arizona. To look at this absolutely comical, fraudulent vote recount, as if to suggest this was on the level. Uh, it's uh, you're you're right. You talked you talked about Mike Flynn being crazy. You know these guys are crazy too. Yeah, but they, they weren't three star generals. They didn't have human beings. Well, yeah, wrong. that's right. But, but they, they you know they control it. votes, which, which which is enough that's to right. disturb us. Right. And so yeah, it's also important, by the way, to elect a Republican governor or excuse me, a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania next year, because if you don't. If the if the Republicans take over Harrisburg, you can rest assured they're gonna to try to enact the same kind of voter suppression laws that, that have been done in Georgia, Arizona, Florida, and Texas. So, you know, big big stakes in Pennsylvania next year. Phew. Steve and uh, and from the Philippines, Steve says as much oh, wow. as I can't stand Donald Trump, most would agree he got it right with respect to China by slapping them with big tariffs. Due to their unfair trade practices. My question is, why do you think Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton were asleep at the switch with respect to this issue?
1: Well, uh, I'm not sure that that was the most effective thing to do. But Congress just passed a, a, a big bill that has a lot to do with our competitors with China. Uh, it really boosts scientific research in the United States, Does does many other things. Uh, and I, I think that we were, you know, the, the operating philosophy was is once they got, had prosperity, they would, like, turn to democracy and want more freedoms, and that didn't work, okay? And we've got to understand that. But I, I don't think trade wars were particularly effective, or this one was particularly effective either. And I think that the Congress is kind of united on this issue that, that – and China is not our enemy, but it is certainly an adversary, and it. Ha- and I think President Biden understands that, and it has to be dealt with as an adversary.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't. I think the tariffs actually probably did more harm to America than they did to China, uh, and um, uh, I. I think China is a is a awesome power. i I'm, I'm just finished a novel, 2034, which is really fascinating about a, the war between China and the United States. It's it's something that you wish were. Uh, just fiction. You're not totally confident. I think that act in, that the Senate passed the other day is, is good, and I think more investments in that. But, you know, they are longer-run issues, and the key is that it's really difficult to walk and chew gum at the same time, both to take them on uh, and also, when possible, to cooperate. It really is quite similar to what we had to do with the Soviet Union back in the 70s and 80s, uh, and I think China may be a, a really a more a more long term threat than the, the Soviets were then. You know, they told the Xi told Trump
1: about the Uyghurs, and Trump didn't have any right. issue with that. And what's happening with the Uyghurs in China is a human rights disaster of oh, the it is. first order. It is. I mean, the first order, and they're way over in. Western China, and, you know, they don't let anybody in. I mean, there's there's mass incarceration, probably genocide, if you listen to some of the stories. I mean, it's just all. Well,
0: and for all the talk about the dangers in the Middle East, which are quite real, the biggest potential threat in the world in the next five or ten years would be if China decides it wants to uh, uh, take reclaim what they think is theirs, which is Taiwan. And I don't quite know what we could do if that happens, but that, 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 that's something that can keep you up at night. Uh, John, I'm sorry, yep. you want to add something to that, James? No, yes. no, no. It'll
1: be Taiwan today. It'll be Vietnam tomorrow, right. and you know, Cambodia, you know. John it.
0: in Georgetown, Kentucky, asks, what are the chances both major parties nominate a woman in 2024, Kamala Harris and Nikki Haley? John, let me tell you something. I cannot tell you. The number of times that I have tried to speculate three years ahead of time who was going to be a nominee or who was going to win. And and almost, I would say, eight times out of 10, I've been wrong. Uh, I don't have any idea what the economy is going to look like then. I don't have any idea what, what the Trump-dominated Republican Party will look like then. Uh, I don't really have any idea uh, how popular Biden will be. I suspect he won't run for re-election, but I don't know that. So uh, I think it's an interesting uh, thesis, but uh, too early.
1: Yeah, I, let's talk about uh, Harris for just sure. a, a second here because she gets the what I'd consider the impossible uh, project, and that is to try to do something about immigration, particularly on our southern border. All right? And, and you know, she, how she performs there will obviously be turntive. But the one thing I do not believe is as of right now that she would clear the field. That, there's, you know, Democrats would say, well, t- t- kind of the way it works is Biden's not running, and so the vice president gets the next nomination. I I, I predict that is not likely to happen. She may win, but she- she- she'll have to beat several people to win.
0: Well, again, I think that depends on what kind of shape Biden's, Biden and Harris administration in, what kind of shape. If the economy is really sure. humming, then we don't have any wars, there are no scandals. Biden's got a, you know, 59% popularity. Uh, it's going to be awful hard okay. to beat Kamala Harris. But if the economy is sinking again and uh, there are problems, and, uh, it's another matter. I, I just think it's tough to... I mean, James, if we tried to speculate at this same time, in right. 2013, and, sure. and, and about what was going to happen, or right. 2017, what was going to happen, or 2005, and, and you know something? I hate to say it, we'd have been wrong. So... Uh, uh, I've been wrong so many times in
1: my life. I've really enough. Shit. Why not? Well, that's true. Yeah, you know, well, that, don't. Uh, what is wrong? I'm wrong for the one thousand seven hundred and forty-fifth time. We're playing, time, playing with you know, house money now, right? One thousand seven hundred forty-five. Right.
0: Yeah. Final <laughs> yeah. question is from <laughs> Patrick in in Pinckney, Michigan. Do you know where Pinckney, Michigan is? I don't. I don't. I don't but Patrick P I. P-I- I know where Pinckneyville,
1: Mississippi Well, Patrick, right right this week, can tell
0: that. us where where uh, where Pinckney is. Uh, look So there's so many great spots in the state of Michigan. And this, James, this is for you. How can the Democratic Party get their bright upcoming candidates to get off this woke virtue signaling that automatically puts them down ten points in red states and start making the D next their name in the ballot such a turnoff? What do they do? This is an issue. I think. <laughs>
1: well, uh, first, have, it, have you ever thought right, about this, James? Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know,
1: so so thank you so much for the question. And, of course, I I went on this kind of anti-woke jihad in in the Vox interview. But what I want people to understand is it's not just that we're turning, like, rural voters in Michigan off with this kind of talk. We're not even communicating with our own people. You know, if you you look at, at every analysis of the 2020 election, it says the same thing you know, David Shore, the Catalyst Analysis. What is this new one that just came out with? You right, know, super the three groups. Uh, yeah, I'll say the same thing. Yeah, the three groups. I'll say the same thing. Our share of the non-white vote went down. And by more than just the T90 bit. And so it, it it's not just that we put off people who may be open to us on economic issues. We put off our own people. And, and, and that, that, that it's a double whammy. And all I'm saying to Democrats is just speak English, okay? Just go with the plain, simple language that people communicate in. And get rid of this faculty lounge dictionary shit that people don't talk like that. Suppose I, Orleans, I see, you know, three, three black guys and I said, hey, how's everything in the community of color today? They would not know what the shit I was talking about. <laughs> If I walked up and I said, "How many games do you think the Saints are going to win?" Hey, man, oh, hey, hey, James, how you doing? I think we're going to win eleven. Oh, no, man, shouldn't win. You know, I mean, it's just you got to hit people at the intersection of where their lives are, and, 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 and that's what I'm saying. And I think he's to something. But I, I'm glad to clarify my position. It's not just that we turn off some white voters with this. We're turning off our own people. We're
0: turning off non-white voters. Yeah. Um, all right, big news for you listeners out there. Next week, next week, we are going to have the second batch of inductees into the Ivy League Sphincter Hall of Fame. We have gotten just a, a, a flood of great suggestions and nominations from you. Uh, again, remember, they have to be Ivy League graduates and they have to be real assholes. But next week, we will induct five more in the Sphincter Hall of Fame. Hasn't been settled yet, but we pay okay. a lot of attention to your recommendations. Uh, uh, absolutely, and people come up with ideas all the time. Like I didn't, oh, I didn't.
1: He went to the Ivy League, so continue to right. search, and it, only, it has to be from right. the eight.
0: Right, uh, And boy, I tell you, the choice making that choice is not going to be easy uh, because there's so many no, good no, nominations. Yeah, it, it, well, I'm going to give it prep. Well, that's course. good. I think you should. James, if we want to make Donald Trump an outrage, we'd have to do this podcast 24-7. The orange man's current delusion is he thinks he's going to be reinstalled as president this summer. But my outrage is more particular. It comes from a book, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost, by The Wall Street Journal's Mike Bender, a really good journalist. He reports that when an unhinged Trump, seeing he was losing to Biden in the polls, he lashed out, quote, how am I losing to a mental retard, period, end quote. Apart from that absurdity, anyone with a scintilla of decency that rules out Trump never uses that term about people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, It's mean, it's vile, it's vicious. That's Trump. Let's just say it here often to Donald Trump. Joe Biden beat you like a drum. He beat you by six million votes. You're a loser. You lost. But Bender also reveals, James that even after South Carolina, Trump thought Biden wouldn't be the nominee. It'd be Michelle Obama or Hillary Clinton. Now, who was whispering advice to Donald Trump then? It was none other than Dick Morris. So my question to you, James, is if there is a sleaze Hall of Fame, who is the first inductee, Donald Trump or Dickie Morris? I, I, I got to think, by the way, did Marsh graduate from Ivy League I, school? I, I, uh, like. I mean, if so, it was an oversight, not putting him in the first batch, but we'll correct We'll do due right. diligence
1: on that. Uh, Mount Rage is back, looking at the Drudge Report, all right? Secret IRS files, how rich avoid tax, Musk paid zero, Fed's pro bombshell leak. You know, we talk about how curtailing voting rights undermines democracy, in order. This kind of stuff undermines democracy and order, where you discover that these people are paying zero in income tax. Now, they got also undermines confidence in the confidentiality of tax returns. So this seems like a the first inning of a big story on a couple of fronts. But there's got to be some emphasis here, because I mean, when people look and say, I pay all these taxes, and, you know, that Washington has schemed this thing in such a way that all of their friends don't pay taxes, and I do. This undermines the concept of democracy, and this is something I wish they could, you know, figure some kind of a way that everybody gets to participate in in taxpaying in this country.
0: Yeah, you're right on both counts. It's disturbing that there was a leak of this sort from the IRS, and it's disturbing uh, what, the, uh, what the what the what the returns show. Uh, it's just. Um, and And when uh you know I hear people like Rob Portman say the one thing we can 't do, the one thing we cannot do uh, in order to fund infrastructure or any kind of these family uh job issues can increase taxes on the richer corporations uh it's totally outrageous, but yeah I want to give a shout out to Secretary of treasury
1: i don 't know what the agreement is worth, but this idea of every of a, you know, global 15% corporate income tax is a damn oh, good sure idea.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and, and you know, I it, don't know if it'll ever get implemented, but the fact that she got the all G7 finance ministers on board with it is a, I think, is a significant. I
0: don't issue. know, James, there has ever been someone, there's ever been a more qualified treasury secretary coming in at least. She is just, uh, it's, it's one of Biden's mm-hmm. great, great appointments.
1: Yeah, it, it is. I, I, I think she's more qualified than Andrew than, uh, Hamilton
0: was. Uh, I didn't yeah. cover Hamilton, so I'm not sure about that. But I'll tell you one I mean, thing, I, she I think she like... may be more qualified than Steve okay. Mnuchin. <laughs> there you go. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Magic Spoon. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week, including the second inductees in the Sphincter Hall of Fame with another show as we continue our War Room planning.